0: The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience here on this fine Tuesday, April the 16th. And it is awfully quiet this week. Thank God, quiet on the home front in Congress because you know what? There's nothing good that's going to come out of there anyway. So we may as well just send them home. But what is going on? Well, there's a lot going on. Obviously... The big news that has dominated the last twenty-four hours or so is the tragedy in France with Notre Dame burning, and you know just the the pain that that a lot of people have watching that. We have a big Catholic audience, particularly on this show, that we know from demographic surveys, and you know I could just tell you as as a non-Catholic, I remember feeling that same that same sorrow watching in gaza as there were you know a bunch of synagogues that were left after the israeli government kicked out their own people and gave it to to hamas and they didn't want to directly destroy them but they didn't know what to do with it cuz they knew the arabs would you know do their thing and within 3 seconds of allowing the hamas dudes to take over they just set Everything on fire and, you know, just brought up images of Kristallnacht and things like that. So, you know, certainly we we grieve with our Catholic brothers here. And a lot of people have made the observation, pretty much everyone, that it's just a symbolism of Western civilization burning from a religious angle, from a political angle. And I wanted to extrapolate on that thought today, the burning of Western civilization, the destruction of Western culture, the destruction of Western nation states. And when we broach this topic, I cannot get away from the thesis of my book. That's why I wrote my book. You know, I write every day. I speak every day. So when I was going to sit down and write a book, it would have to be something enduring that I felt overrides every other issue. And as you well know, stolen sovereignty overrides everything because the greatest way, the surest way, the most immediate way to transform a civilization is obviously through unbridled migration. There's many other ways you could kill your civilization internally, and uh, in America and Europe, we're certainly doing that a good job of that. But if you want to directly just replace your civilization, you bring in mass migration from cultures and areas that are dramatically different and, and opposed to to your culture. And lo and behold, you get a transformation. But on top of that, it's bad enough if you make the political decision to do that yourself. But what if you get unelected judges, a highly elite class of people in a legal profession, that get to make those suicidal decisions? So it's so it's double. You steal your sovereignty by invading you know, having having an invasion, but then that decision is made by an unelected branch of government. In addition, Aside from immigration, judicial supremacy, not just in America, but really it started in Europe, Israel, places like that, affects every other issue. How we could just give up on marriage, on life, on culture, because at any moment, any judge could decide something, and we're told there's nothing we can do about it. To me, that is really the core of what has destroyed Western civilization. Everything has really gone back to that. I mean even if you look at England now with Brexit. Where does everything ultimately wind up? In the courts. You have no you, you have you have no ability of self-determination. Pretty unbelievable. So I got to thinking about this because I was writing up my article today, a column for today, on this Judge Carlton Reeves from Mississippi. We spoke about him a little last week. Thursday night, he gave a speech, ironically, while getting a Thomas Jefferson Award from a Virginia law school. And he lambasted the president. He talked about the need for more black judges and minority judges, criticized the president's judicial nominees, criticized the president for criticizing his branch of government while he refuses to abide by Supreme Court orders. And, you know, I just finally read through the full speech, and I'm going to link to it in show notes. It's 16 pages. I want you guys to read it it will give you a glimpse into the mindset of hundreds of these people. I think by now all of you understand the mindset of someone like Ilan Omar or Alexandria Cortez, Bernie Sanders, right? Now, when was the last time they had the power to really enact anything? I can't remember a piece of legislation any of them ever enacted into law. Yet there are hundreds of people who think like them that are on district judges, that thanks to uh, the biggest lie in the history of law and government, they are regarded as the final say until they're and unless they're overturned by a higher court. And then, even then, at any moment, they could always disregard those rulings. And you're going to read, ironically, in this speech that he gave alongside his antipathy for the president and for other branches pushing back against the judiciary is really his own antipathy for what the Supreme Court is doing that he doesn't like. And that's his own branch of government that should be above him. Meaning just like the secretary of DHS has to listen to the president, a district judge has to listen to the court above him. That's the irony. They These judges think that they should control the president, but they themselves shouldn't be controlled by the Supreme Court. It's an unbelievable speech. You'll see this en- en- enigma where they blast our history and Constitution and make it very clear that, well, Jefferson was a man of his time, but then they claim the legacy of the founders and the Constitution while blasting at the same time, because they believe it was given over to them in subsequent generations to discover and promulgate new rights and new ideas as they see fit. And this really, if you think about it, this is an all-civilization in America, but certainly in Europe before America, how these elites have sacked civilization so quickly because they've created this rule that the judiciary gets to do everything. So that's kind of their forward guard where they'll be the canary in the coal mine. They're going to go first. Even before the people are ready, so to speak, they're going to start inducing that Transformation, that societal transformation. And then look, well, you know, it might be unpopular, but look, what are you going to do? It's the law of the land. The judge said so. The laws aren't the law of the land. Judicial flatulence is the law of the land. And then that creates a self-fulfilling prophecy within the culture where the more you push it, the more it kind of turns the public opinion in and of itself And then people don't even have a desire to push back anymore. And that's that's how they've done this. And certainly nowhere is this more evident than with immigration. We sit here today. This president has renewed 373,000 DACA amnesties just since last January. 300,000 TPS amnesties. And now my article out today, 750,000 work permits to illegal aliens who invade our country. Bogus asylum claims. We know it's bogus. But we just, you know, the unelected branches, the judiciary and the executive working on the assumption of what the judiciary might do or has done is able to come full circle and nullify the laws of the people, even the laws that pertain to the future orientation of your very society. How we are now at a point where we have the Immigration Nationality Act, which was designed every single title of it, every single clause of it, to prevent what is going on today, and it was reiterated in 1996... And yet, we are to believe that people like Carlton Reeves, that you, I mean, read his thing and you will see right away, you will never get a fair hearing in front of a guy like that. Everything is racial. That they could bastardize our laws to the point that there is no such thing as an illegal immigrant now. That's what they're saying. They're saying that one clause in a vacuum read like Amelia Bedelia and bastardized, ignoring all the other clauses of, of credible fear and asylum, and then voiding out 20 other titles of the INA, essentially make it that everything that Congress ever said to block illegal immigrants and to force detention pending deportation and force expedited removal And grant the president authority that he frankly already had under Article 2 to keep at anyone doesn't apply. Nothing applies. You know, I was just reading last night. 8 U.S.C. Code 1222. It's a small title of the INA. And I never really noticed it before. For the purpose of determining whether aliens arriving at points of the United States belong to any of the classes inadmissible under this chapter by reason of being afflicted with any of the diseases or mental or physical defects or disabilities set forth in section 1182A or whether the Attorney General has received information showing that any aliens are coming from a country or have embarked at a place where any of such diseases are prevalent or epidemic, such aliens shall be detained by the AG for a sufficient time to enable the immigration officers and medical officers to subject the aliens to observation and an examination sufficient to determine whether or not they belong to inadmissible classes. So you see what I'm saying? It's not just that in 1182 it says you're inadmissible if you have diseases. It's that there's another title to buttress that, saying that they shall detain for sufficient time to ensure of this. So think about it. Just 1222 alone makes illegal what this administration is doing, whether on their own volition or the perception that the courts are making them do it. That by definition, when you have people coming from disease-ridden areas with hepatitis with chagas, with scabies, measles, mumps, pitosis, rubella. Obviously, tuberculosis is a very big one from the Central American countries. And then, like we said yesterday, you have the Africans that have, I mean, malaria, all sorts of things, Ebola, yellow fever, everything imaginable from these countries. You must, according to law, hold them for a sufficient time that you could rule out any of these problems not like oh do you need help let me give you some triage no 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 not for you for americans so if it's if it's something like mumps that it takes 24 days to exhibit symptoms you need to you need to hold them for that long other things take 6 to 8 weeks that alone prohibits what they're doing i mean it's unbelievable this whole thing is crazy. I, I I just I just don't know what we do here. I mean, th- th- this is the law of the land. Yet this is what has happened to Western civilization. We don't believe in our laws, our culture. We don't believe in the goodness of our history and our traditions anymore. So for the last generation, we've seeded... To a corroded and irremediably corrupt legal profession, the keys to our castle. To use multiculturalism and a racist, racialist agenda to void out our duly passed laws, to void out our sovereignty, to contort the Constitution beyond belief. I wanna come back to immigration but I want to first go backwards and start with just the general concept of judicial supremacy, that the Supreme Court, much less the lower courts, are the sole and final arbiter of, as a political rule for every political question, every societal, social, cultural question, including foreign affairs, border, war and peace. You know, this Carlton Reeves dude was getting the Thomas Jefferson Award. Thomas Jefferson once said in a in a letter to Judge um what was his name? Uh Spencer Rowan, September 6, eighteen nineteen. He talked about again back then the Federalists who are Jefferson's opponents they wanted to make as a as a kind of political argument that the other branches should defer to the courts when there's a disagreement or on fundamental questions of constitutional interpretation again nobody ever assumed it was a veto that was not what we adopted in our constitution but as a political matter they were worried about you know popular uprisings they were worried about the french revolution and they start to posit this argument that, hey, maybe you know, when they issue a ruling in a case, we should treat that ruling as a political rule to to be followed. And Thomas Jefferson said that it would make our constitution garbage. Quote. For intending to establish three departments, coordinate and independent, that they might check and balance one another, it has given, according to this opinion, to one of them alone, the right to prescribe rules for the government of the others. And to that, and to that one too, which is unelected by, and independent of the nation. He said that it it is unbelievable He said that if you're going to do this, it makes the Constitution on this hypothesis a mere thing of wax in the hands of the judiciary, which they may twist and shape into any form they please. It should be remembered as an axiom of eternal truth in politics that whatever power in any government is independent is absolute also, in theory only at first, while the spirit of the people is up. But in practice, as fast as that relaxes, independence can be trusted nowhere but with the people in mass. And that's the thing. That's the profundity of it. Over time, like, you know, again, right now, if a court would say, I don't know, you know, I I gave the example that you must fly those bo- allow those Boeing planes which were grounded for safety concerns to fly. N- n- you know, everyone's going to push back against that. But if you take issues where the people have been rotted out on, then you can't count on anything, and you're done. You are completely done, as a nation and Jefferson went on to explain that each of the th- quote each of the three departments has equally the right to decide for itself what is its duty under the constitution without regard to what the others may have decided for themselves under a similar question meaning you want to get a question in front of you you want to grant standing to someone that's fine but you can't tell me as president i must let these people in give them work permits are you kidding me I mean, what I don't understand is if we had an invasion in one part of our... Let's say the Mexican government was invading us with an army at one part of our our border and Central American migrants were coming in with bogus asylum claims in another. Are you telling me we couldn't shut the border? we, We couldn't suspend immigration and follow 212F? Let me ask you another question. The Supreme Court said last year the president could keep out Somalis. I'm just giving you an example. That was one of the countries that was listed in the so-called travel ban. So if somehow they come to the land border rather than apply at a consulate to fly here at an airport, somehow that doesn't apply? Of course not. The president could say, no, you're out of here. So why couldn't he just say, we're suspending migration from Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador? Get the left, through the courts, they've created, ironically, a protected class of illegal immigrants that actually have more rights than people who apply legally. If you apply legally, you're subject to the president's exclusion. We're saying you come to the border, all bets are off. You apply legally, you have to get immunized and you have to document that. And if we can't confirm your immunization, you're not carrying uh, infectious diseases... You're not allowed to be let in. You break into our border. They want to have us believe that that doesn't apply. Folks, if you notice, there was, quote, hostile migrants breaking the border gate to enter Mexico in the southern part of, you know, southern Mexico, coming from Guatemala to Mexico. They attacked the police there. These people are headed in a caravan for our country. If we are at the point as a culture when we think we have to ask permission from a court to keep them out, I, I, I don't know what to say anymore. I just <laughs> I just don't know, don't know what to say anymore. The Mexican National Immigration Institute announced that about 350 migrants broke the border gate and that they were, quote, hostile and, quote, aggressive. One of the migrants who spoke to the AP, Claudia Jacqueline Sandoval said she is HIV positive. Real nice, real nice. I, I I just I don't know what to tell you. And and like I told you from um that uh assistant chief patrol agent I spoke to at the border he said he is, quote, most concerned, he told me, most concerned about the single adults coming. Tons of them are coming in. That's what people don't realize. Meaning, even if somehow you would think there's a right in a vacuum for families claiming bogus asylum somehow overrides the INA, which of course it doesn't. But the notion that you couldn't shut down that because it's enabling the belligerents. This is from CBP in uh, in Laredo. Border Patrol agents assigned to the Hebronsville Station arrested fifty-seven illegal aliens during a foiled human smuggling attempt near Oilton, Texas. The incident occurred during the early morning of April 11th when Border Patrol agents observed four pickup trucks inside a ranch just north of Oilton. Agents monitored the area before approaching the vehicles and apprehended forty illegal aliens. The illegal aliens' nationalities were determined to be 30 from Guatemala, 19 from Mexico, 6 from Honduras, and 2 from Nicaragua. They had to deploy air and marine operations, you know, helicopters to track them down hiding in the brush. I don't even know if those people are going to be deported. It takes for. A- This is what it means not to have a civilization anymore. This is what it means not to have a civilization. We're not even deporting right away those people. Nobody gets deported right away. They get to adjudicate and litigate. And it's just, it's completely made up. These immigration judges, the notion that they're entitled to an immigration judge. As I told you before, when we went through the history of the immigration courts in the 1980s, it was made up without statute. So, let me tell you something that's going to incense you. This is from uh, last week. Men charged in upper Derby luring attempts. Men charged in upper Derby luring attempts. Um, so um, this is Delaware County near, uh, near the Philly area. Police arrested 25-year-old Udi Nahara Arida on Monday night after a patrol officer recognized the vehicle he was driving as the same car wanted in connection with two attempted lurings. Around 3 p.m. Friday near Long Lane and Clinton Road, an 11-year-old girl reported a man tried to get her to come into his vehicle. The girl fled and called police. 20 minutes later, near Midway Avenue and Little Croft Road, a 16-year-old girl said a man tried to lure her into his car and was exposing and touching himself. She also ran. Court records state that the video shows the 11-year-old stop and turn towards the actor in his vehicle, then continue walking on Long Lane. Um, and they basically they apprehended the guy. It's not until the very end of the article that you see Immigration Customs Enforcement put a detainer on that suspect. Authorities say the Honduras native who resides in Upper Darby is here illegally. That's the last uh, sentence there. So I reached out to ICE's office in Philly. To to see what's going on, you know what what's the story with this guy? Do you have any data on him now? I I I expected no. We we don't have anything, and you know he must have come in illegally at some point. No, they know about this guy. Here's what he told me. Um. Uh, Udi Nahara Rida. 25, an unlawfully present citizen of Honduras, was arrested November 28, 2012, by U.S. Border Patrol as he attempted to enter the United States illegally. Now, if you do the math, that was oh well. Actually, if they're right about his age, that would put him at 19 at the time. So he should be an adult. But on May 16th, 2016, an immigration judge administratively closed his case as he was not considered an enforcement priority at the time. Think about that. A regular male illegal coming in November 28th, 2012, somehow was able to remain for years, not deported. And three and a half years, almost four years later, an immigration judge just closed his case. And now he went on to be a child molester, attempted child molester, who knows what else he did. We don't believe in ourselves as a culture. I mean, this is this is the collapse of a culture. all because of this dangerous lie about judges having the final say. Let me, again, I'm going to weave back and forth between immigration and the courts because they're inextricably linked. I want to read to you some more quotes from Jefferson and Madison. As you all know, under the John Adams government, they passed the Sedition Act in 1798 and made it a felony to print, utter, or publish any false, scandalous, or malicious writings about the government. So, you know, Jefferson and Madison campaigned against that. Jefferson promised to not enforce it. Now, these were laws duly passed by Congress and signed by President Adams into law. I want to be very clear here. Jefferson was you know everyone's like Daniel do you say um we should defy a court Jefferson was defying the law not a court he was defying the law so th- look at this arrangement here think about it think about what happens you pass a law so it's a felony to do this so a judge will ultimately be in charge of prosecuting and you know locking you up for violating it but again, who locks someone up? The executive branch. Meaning, I've told you this a million times, just like when the executive branch wants to lock someone up, ultimately you've got to be convicted by a judge, and the judge could opt not to convict you because they believe it's unconstitutional. So to, the other way, if a judge wants to convict you for something, the executive branch could say, no, that's garbage. And that's what he was doing here. And the, the irony of all ironies, you know, is a very complicated relationship between Jefferson and Adams. They were friends, then arch enemies, and then later in life they um, reunited in the in the eighteen twenties, and they they literally died within a few hours of each other. Um, Jefferson died a a few a few hours before um, Adams died. Very bitter, he uh, said his final words. Ironically, where Jefferson lives. Incidentally Jeff, uh, Jefferson actually died a couple hours before, but um, that that's what was on his mind when uh, when he died. But anyway, this was a letter September 11th, 1804 from Monticello. So think about it. Jefferson was towards the end of his first term he was a sitting president. He was having a correspondence with Abigail Adams. And he talks about this whole business with the Federalists and the fight and everything. And he says, quote, you seem to think it devolves on the judges to decide on the validity of the sedition law. But nothing in the Constitution has given them a right to decide for the executive more than to the executive to decide for them. Both magistracies are equally independent in the sphere of action assigned to them. The judges, believing the law constitutional, had a right to pass a sentence of fine and imprisonment because that power was placed in their hands by the Constitution. But the executive, believing the law to be unconstitutional, was bound to remit the execution of it because that power has been confided to him by the Constitution. That instrument, meaning the Constitution, meant that its coordinate branches should be checks on each other. But the opinion which gives to the judges the right to decide what laws are constitutional and not, not only for themselves in their own sphere of action, but for the legislative and executives also in their spheres would make the judiciary a despotic branch. So... Notice the wording there. For themselves in their own sphere of action. I tell you this all the time. We're, we all agree to the concept of judicial review as understood that if, if in the process of a court dealing with the law, because that's what courts do. They deal with the people applying the law. So, there, so the Constitution inevitably is going to come up. Well, what if the law is non-constitutional? What if the policy is non-constitutional? So, for their sphere of action, which is meeting out fines or imprisonment, they could say their thing. But in terms of visas, marriage licenses, um, foreign policy, border policy, they—they they that's not in their sphere of action. They don't decide that for the other branches of government. And notice here, Jefferson was talking about cases where the law says to do this. The courts weren't trying to nullify or disregard the law as they do today. They were just meeting out the law, following it. But Jefferson believed the law was unconstitutional. So you have all three branches. It was passed by the previous legislature and signed the law by the president, enforced by the country judiciary, and still as a new separate executive branch, Jefferson felt it was his obligation to push back. How much more so when you have... The unelected judiciary nullifying long-standing laws, customs, history, and tradition. And not even being the Supreme Court, but lower courts. Yet the same piece of garbage Carlton Reeves, who received this Thomas Jefferson Award, has the nerve to lecture us about protecting the judiciary. These are the type of lessons you're not going to hear elsewhere. Now let's go on to Madison. See Madison on September 16th, 1789. Um June, June 16th, 1789, they were debating a bunch of very foundational questions. It was the first Congress. He was in the House of Representatives. And they're debating the president's power to remove executive officials. Now, Madison believed very emphatically, as should be the prevailing thought today, that, of course, the president could hire them, the president could fire them. Just because they get approved by the Senate doesn't mean that you can only get rid of them with approval from the Senate. You need the Senate to approve them, but you know the president could fire them. Now, if the president wants to fill that vacancy with someone new, then he has to come back before the Senate. Right? So he was actually defending the prerogatives of the executive branch as, as a member of the House of Representatives. But you know, people were disagreeing. William Smith of South Carolina wasn't sure. And he posited this notion that maybe this William Smith, maybe we should wait until there's a case comes before the courts. Meaning, presumably the president would fire someone, let's say George Washington would fire someone. And then we'll see what happens. And again, the notion—notice—we're not talking about questions of war and peace, of civilization, of life, marriage. It was—it was a you know a question of a very like esoteric question of government in a very specific way. So there were those that believed we should defer because we're not if we're not sure what to do. Which again, it makes sense. It makes sense. If you think about it, everyone agreed, especially back then when the lawyers and the um, judges were crafters of the Constitution, They, they wanted to safeguard it as originally intended. I also, if I would have lived back then, would have wanted to defer to them. But that's not a legal mandate and a legal veto power. It's a political position. It's the same thing I say nowadays. If every judge were Clarence Thomas, I would I would want to defer to the courts too. But that's a political argument, that's not a, a legal argument. So Madison was just incredulous when he heard this guy say this. He said, "Wait a minute. Let's debate it here and now. We we don't, you know, wait for the courts." But the great objection drawn from the source to which the last argument would lead us is that the legislature itself has no right to expound the Constitution. That whenever its meaning is doubtful, you must leave it to take its course until the judiciary is called upon to declare its meaning. And then also he doubted, quote, whether this question could even come before the judges. That's what he was like, you know, where's the standing? What's very interesting here, what's very interesting and important is that, um, what do you call it, Madison understood that, of course, there would be some avenue for the courts to get involved. This is, a, this is a very important quote from Madison to understanding what the role of the courts are. I, this was the same speech, June 16, 1789. I acknowledge in the ordinary course of government that the exposition of the laws and constitution devolves upon the ju- judicial. Right? That's, he actually says that because they're the ones that most naturally on a regular basis are going to be dealing with it. In the ordinary course of government, meaning you're just interpreting like the in the weed statutes and this, and that. but I beg to know upon what principle it can be contended that any one department draws from the Constitution greater powers than the other in marking out the limits of the powers of the several departments. The Constitution is the charter of the people and the government. It specifies certain great powers as absolutely granted and marks out the departments to exercise them. If the constitutional boundary of either be brought into question, I do not see that any one of these independent departments has more right than another to declare their sentiments on the point. And remember, when these questions came up, even those that were a little bit more you know, into the Federalist point of view at the time, not the Madisonian, Jeffersonian point of view, these guys, they were talking about things where it generally wasn't clear. Separation of powers questions are very – there's an inherent gray area Well, where, you know, Congress could legislate these conditions on the executive, but the president has the power to hire and fire. So, we, you know, w- w- when the two brush up against each other. But for courts just to say illegals have rights, habeas corpus t- today, uh, you must let in a million immigrants. Marriage is not a marriage. Life begins then. No one in their right mind would have believed you have to defer to the judicial branch of government. Absurd. You know, Madison explained this best. One more quote I want to I want to leave you with from Madison. He explained this best in um. A series of essays. They were debating uh, involvement in um. What, what do you call it? in the in, in the in the you know French Civil War? And Madison explains what happens when the legislature and the president disagree. Now you would say, right? Because that was the whole question about what 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 to do. They disagreed over the inherent powers of the president. Um, to aid France, and Madison wrote a series of anonymous essays under the pseudonym of Helvidius, debating Hamilton. You know, on the Washington administration's posture towards France, and you would expect that Madison would say, "Well." when Congress and the and the President disagree, well, you you call in the courts, right? The courts, just like the courts, you know, settle a dispute between two companies or two individuals, they settle disputes over, you know, the other two coordinate branches of government. No, that's not what he says. He said, quote, it may happen also that different independent departments, the legislative and executive, for example, may, in the exercise of their functions... Interpret the Constitution differently, and thence lay claim each to the same power. This difference of opinion is an inconvenience not entirely to be avoided. In other words, he's saying it's not even such a bad thing. It results from what may be called, if it be thought fit, a concurrent right to expound the Constitution. Again, this is when things were inherently gray, with the legislature and the president, which there really are a lot of inherent gray areas and a lot of very deep questions that often there is no good answer to because the boundaries are very murky. Foreign affairs is always very tough because the president has full power on that. But then Congress certainly in their power to legislate could control international commerce, power of the purse. There's a lot of different things they could push back on. Ratifying treaties. These are are big, big, deep spheres of law. But the notion that the courts could give right to foreign caravans belligerently marching into our country to be allowed in? and, and, And that the executive branch couldn't assert 200 years of the judicial branch's own case law? But yet, that is what has happened to our civilization. Jefferson's worst nightmares... This was his worst nightmare. No one dreamt of it at the time that a lower court could say, like, a marriage is not a marriage, you know, anyone could invade invade your country. But he was worried about this slippery slope. He said it's like a, a thing of wax in your hands. like, you know, wh- where where's the end to this? Where's the end to this? He said, Jefferson said in a letter to um, William Johnson, towards the end of his life in 1823, There is no danger I apprehend so much as the consolidation of our government by the noiseless and therefore unalarming instrumentality of the Supreme Court. That was the biggest thing that he worried about. His final letter to Edward Livingston, March 1825, shortly before he died, One single object will entitle you to the endless gratitude of society, that of restraining judges from usurping legislation. Could you imagine that this piece of garbage Judge Carlton Reeves said at the end of his uh, screed that... We do Jefferson justice. We do the martyrs of Mississippi justice. We do our country justice by defending our judiciary. <laughs> he invoked Jefferson when Jefferson said his biggest concern was that. Think about it. I mean it's 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 just truly unbelievable. He said in a letter to um, Jarvis in 1820, you seem to consider the judges the ultimate arbiters of all constitutional questions. A very dangerous doctrine indeed, and one which would place us under the despotism of an oligarchy. Our judges and their power are the most dangerous as they are in office for life and are not responsible as the other functionaries are to the elective control. The Constitution has erected no such single tribunal, knowing that to whatever hands confided, with the corruptions of time and party, its members would become despots. It has more wisely made all the departments co-equal and co-sovereign within themselves. When the legislative or executive functionaries act unconstitutionally, they are responsible to the people in their elective capacity. The exemption of judges from this is quite dangerous enough. I know of no safe dispository of the ultimate powers of the society, but the people themselves. And that's the ultimate thing. Think about it. Think about it. Imagine if Congress tomorrow and the president were to have a debate, legislative process, and eventually pass and sign into law a bill saying, we will import 5 million Somalis and this and that, and we have no borders anymore. Anyone who comes in is here, and to the extent you could deport people, it's very rare and it will take five years. Do you think they could pass that? And if they did, do you understand what would happen in the next election? Yet we are told that a judge could do this. A single district judge. Nothing we can do about it. Nothing matters in in our society until these issues are dealt with. And again, I want to get back to what these people are doing to us on immigration. I want to read to you something very important. But, um, First off, I just, again, I want to reiterate that Lincoln said the same thing in his Thus Says the Lord speech at the first uh, debate with Stephen Douglas, when he said that when you say that any opinion of a court is the law simply because it's decided by a court, and you are bound to take it in your political action as law, without judging it on its merits or anything. So he says, you will bear in mind that you are thus committing himself, or he is committing himself. He's talking to he's talking to the audience about Stephen Douglas, unreservedly to this decision, commits him to the next one just as firmly as to this. This is the moral hazard of our time. This is the greatest constitutional crisis in the history of our nation. Because, again, you had the buddings of it as early as the 1790s, but they're over very small, relatively unconsequential, abstract questions. But nowadays, it is over the civilization and nation state itself that we are saying that a judge could wave his hand, control war, peace, borders, life, marriage, elections, you name it, nothing is out of bounds. Social transformation without representation indeed. This is nothing like King George ever did, nothing. Never did anything like this. Couple of taxes here and there. Give me a break. He can't hold a candle on what's happened in our generation. I want to read to you from a great thinker, Victor Davis Hansen. Are there any limits on illegal immigration? It's a new column out this week at American Greatness. The U.S.-Mexican border is essentially wide open. Why? Because there is a general expectation in Mexico and Latin America that American immigration law is unenforced. Or it is so bizarre that simple legal entry almost always ensures temporary legal residence pending on asylum hearing. A scheduled asylum hearing in turn is seen by border crossers as a mere formality to be ignored. The popular perception on the border then is to stick one foot illegally onto U.S. soil and presto win permanent residence for you and any family member who wish to follow. In an age of 500 sanctuary city and county jurisdictions, few illegal aliens believe they will ever be deported permanently, even if they have been apprehended committing serious crimes. There's also a general perception among would-be illegal entrants that prominent Democrats and uh, progressives welcome their massive influxes as useful and will do their best to ensure legal immigration continues unabated. Think about that. I'm saying he puts into words really what we're what we're saying, very stark terms. There's also this assumption that the greater the chaos at the border, the less likely Congress will take bipartisan action to end it. After all, 2020 is an election year, and progressives are in no mood to hand Trump the semblance of legislative victory. The fact is also known, this fact is also known to would-be border crossers. Legal alien families sense that they are vital to progressive agendas of fundamentally transforming the country by importing first-generation loyal constituents, a sentiment that is slowly replacing the prior idea of mostly young men coming to work off the books. In an increasingly tribal America, they expect on arrival to be recalibrated instantly from Mexican nationals without any experience of America into Latinos and Hispanics with historical grievances against the majority population of the U.S. to be remedied by Reparatory hiring and admission and facilitated by ethnic operatives. Some polls in the past have suggested that a third of Mexican, Mexico's population would immigrate to the U.S. if possible. The percentages of would-be immigrants from Central America are likely to be even higher. In theory, 50 million could cross the border in the next two decades, which poses the question, what are the theoretical limits on illegal immigration? When would it cease? When fifty million or sixty million or maybe eighty million foreign nationals entered illegally, historically, massive influxes of migrants from one nation to another are reflections of imbalances in fertility and demography and radical political, economic, and cultural asymmetries. People vote in mass with their feet to escape violence, oppression, and poverty to flee to a different indeed antithetical system that promises them greater security, freedom, and economic opportunity. Think in the past of mainland China versus Hong Kong, East versus West Germany, North versus South Korea, or Europe versus North Africa and the Middle East. Mass population movements end if there is border symmetry in the fashion that Canadian and American immigration immigrants roughly balance each other out. The promise that Mexico and Central America in the early 21st century would obtain rough economic parity with the U.S. has not happened. Despite progress there and lower birth rates in the U.S., but what has transpired is a radical increase in cartel and gang violence, endemic corruption, and general lowering of the quality of life south of the border. Under such conditions, the logical limits of immigration can be calibrated, not so much by whether countries south of the border reach parity with American standards of living, freedom, security, and quality of life, but rather... The current issue is whether regions of America, especially the American Southwest, become roughly indistinguishable from Latin America and Mexico, and therefore in terms of economic opportunity, safety, and quality of life, do not offer that much of an improvement, or at least not such a radical margin of enhancement to justify abandoning one's homeland. In such an equation, the more that illegal aliens arrive, swamp social services, and tax law enforcement, the more that they create ethnic enclaves that resist rapid assimilation, the more that they sense that their hosts see them most useful as an identity politics constituency, then the more parts of the Southwestern United States will see more like Mexico and perhaps to the point of eventually diminishing illegal immigration. Just skipping a little bit here. How illegal immigration changes us. Illegal immigration and its effects on a community are incremental but steady. This past week, two miles from my home, an illegal alien fled the scene of an accident that I caused which of an accident that he had caused, which killed a pregnant Mexican-American and critically injured her 11-year-old daughter. He is still at large. Within a 100-mile radius of Central California, at least five citizens were killed by illegal alien gunmen in the last four months. When I go to town to drop off dry cleaning, I rarely hear English spoken. Almost all the stories in the shopping center where I've gone for 50 years have Spanish names. Few English signs are apparent or needed. The formerly rich, diverse community of Japanese... Armenian, Basque, Portuguese, Mexican, and Scandinavian Americans have long since vanished. I stopped riding a bike in my rural environs four years ago, given the packs of unlicensed and unvaccinated dogs and the owner's indifference to their attacks on passerbyers. From experience of driving each week across the Central Valley to the California coast, I assume that about one of every 20 cars at rural intersections will run the stop sign. I make the further assumption that if I'm hit, the driver of the other car may well flee the scene and has no license, insurance or registration has never felt any real need to obtain them. In in my immediate rural environs, there is now the following. One, an illegal dump of various junk wrecked cars and discarded household items. Two, a strange open air vacant storage lot dotted with porta-potties, trailers and assorted junk spread over five acres. Three, a bizarre sort of camp in which lean-to's shacks and tents are hidden among an old persimmon Orchard where no one quite knows how many such structures are hidden inside the mysterious grove. Four, a permanent hanging garden of Babylon type of yard sale where a home's trees and bushes are littered with hanging clothing and floatsome and jetsome, some of them rotting from the recent rains. Five, a former backyard that is now a small goat mart. Six, an unlicensed ad hoc outdoor barbershop. Seven, an unlicensed ad hoc outdoor daycare center. I'll stop there, but the avenue where I've lived for 65 years in terms of fundamental metrics of civilization, sanitation, single-family zoning, building codes, mosquito abatement, dog licensing and registration, and sanctions for illicit activity has regressed a half a century or more. Officials apparently assume that visiting these places can become a lose-lose-lose situation. Just going to skip further a little bit more. Very long article, very well Worth uh, bookmarking. Life down the street is conducted mostly on the premise of rural Mexico, where one does what one pleases, or must in terms of water, power, sanitation, business, commerce, leisure, and pets, without audit from authorities. One, the disturbing litany of DUIs, gang stabbings and shootings, fatal hit and run accidents, police shootings of armed suspects, high speed chases, robberies, and drug busts. Two, there are also many human interest inspirational stories of illegal aliens from Mexico who are running successful businesses whose children are star athletes or students. The subtext is not that they are doing the exceptional things other Americans are not doing, but that they merit special attention and approbation because of their immigrant status and the obstacles they have overcome. Three, the grievance or victimization meme. The lawsuit against law enforcement, the filing of a biased claim against the country, the firing of an official for some allegedly alleged insensitivity, or the injustice of some agency that has curtailed support from, tried to deport, or was somehow biased against an illegal alien. The point is that unlike the past, almost every news story is grounded in some sort of overt ethnic context and ultimately related to legal immigration and its effects. You know... This is unreal. Let me just come to his end. Very, very good article here. The other day I noticed for the first time that I have a lot more fear of an oncoming car in rural rural California than I had of intersections in Libya. A lot more worries about a wild stray dog wandering into my yard than I did while living in Greece. A lot more anxiety of being shot or robbed than I did when visiting the current Middle East. And a lot less hope of being treated promptly in extremists at the local emergency room than I would have expected in Eastern Europe. In that strange sense, I guess I have some hope that illegal immigration will soon taper off. And again, his thesis is, maybe it's not until we become completely collapsed, where ironically, there is no difference between Western civilization and their civilization. That finally, finally, we will put this to an end. But once again, we can't even hope as a nation to do this. Either chaos theory that it gets so bad, or if God willing, we don't have to let it get this bad to act, we can't actualize that until we push back against judicial supremacy. Remember, we want to do new things. And the courts are now saying what, deportation laws, denial of entry laws for 50 years, existing laws are are unenforceable. And we believe that's the law of the land. So again, I certainly don't want to be insensitive to um, our Catholic brethren and friends and the direct pain that they experience from that. But for those of you who are drawing metaphors an allegory from what's going on. I wanted to put an exclamation mark on what it means to have a burning civilization. Folks, so that is the lamentation for today. We'll be back to regular scheduling tomorrow with some of the news of the day. But really wanted to give you that full picture on the courts and immigration because nothing matters until it's dealt with. God bless you all. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.